Good morning. It's good to be in the house of the Lord today, isn't it? Get myself organized here a little bit. No motorcycle this time. <laughs> Got to keep track of my time, so. <laughs> All right. I just want to extend a, a warm welcome to uh, anybody that's visiting here today. Um, we're glad you're here with us, and um, I pray that your time here today will uh, uh, be a blessing and that you will see the Spirit of the Lord in us and lived out in a very practical way, in a way that glorifies our Savior. Because isn't that the goal of being a Christian, to be a light in a dark world and... Um, you know, this is not a perfect church. I love this church. This is not a perfect church. No church is perfect, right? Because, because we are the church, and we're human, and we fail, and we struggle, and have different difficulties through life, especially nowadays. Um, but we look to a perfect God to show us mercy and forgiveness in our weaknesses and our struggles and, and, and to find peace in troubled times. The world today is full of trouble on many fronts. We need encouragement when we are troubled, hope in the midst of despair, comfort in our sorrows, strength in our weaknesses, Faith in the time of testing. Assurance in our doubt. Courage in times of trials and persecutions. But most of all, we need a God that we can trust for all eternity. A God who keeps his promises to us, his creation. Amen. We do have that in Christ, and much more, but sometimes we have a tendency to forget, maybe to lose sight of that relationship and allow the trials, tribulations, troubles that this world brings, the struggles that we face each day to weaken our faith, to maybe chip away at it little bits at a time. There are times when we may not feel as close to the Lord as we would like It's good to be reminded often on just how good God really is and what he has prepared for those who truly believe and trust in Jesus as their Lord and Savior. We need that on a regular basis. Not just faith by our words, but also demonstrated by our lives. Amen? Can we pray? Real quick before we move on. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for this time that we have. Lord, we are so grateful and thankful for you. 
We are thankful for your word and for the promises that it contains, Lord. Father, we pray that your spirit will dwell with us today, that he will quicken our hearts and our minds to your word, Lord, that he will bring clarity to my thoughts and my limited ability to communicate the greatness and the vastness of your word, Lord. We thank you as a family, Lord. We thank you as a body of believers who look to you for strength and purpose and courage, Lord. You are a faithful God, and we love you so much. We just want our lives to be a testimony for the greatness and goodness that you've shown us. God, we thank you, and we thank you for all the blessings we have, and we ask you to bless us by your presence. In Jesus' name, amen. Having said all that, let's turn to the word to guard to guide us today. And we'll be turning to, uh, as Phil read, 1 Peter chapter 1. I'll be going over uh, verses 1 through 12 this morning. 1 Peter is a, a very interesting book I've found over the past few days. Such a helpful encouragement to the church on a whole. And I was... I, once I started digging in, I just I, I I discovered so much more about Peter, so much more about about the the purpose of this book is so vital to the church today. Wayne Grudem commented uh, in his uh, Tyndale New Testament commentary on First Peter. It says, I do not think that any Christian can study this letter for long without hearing it in the voice of God, speaking powerfully to the needs of today's church. In only 105 verses, 1 Peter ranges over a wide field of Christian theology and ethics. Here is the great doctrine of redemption. From its conception before the foundation of the world to its consummation in our receiving an inheritance, that will never fade away. Here are repeated calls to holiness and to humble trust in God for each day's needs. Here is a practical counsel for marriage, for work, for relating to the government, for witnessing to unbelievers, for using spiritual gifts, for serving as a church officer. Here, also, here is also profound comfort in sorrow and insight as far as God allows into the deep mystery, mysteries of suffering and reprobation. Here is the majestic beauty of the church as a spiritual temple. That's us, the spiritual temple of Christ. The spirit dwells within us. In which daily we offer spiritual sacrifices pleasing to God. And here's Jesus, the chief shepherd who cares for us the example who leads us, the chosen cornerstone who establishes and unites us, and the Savior who bore our sins in his body on the cross, the one whom, not having seen, we love. So let's turn to our text. Phil read the first 12 verses, so I won't reread the entire uh, portion of Scripture. So we'll start off in the beginning, and it says, verse 1 says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontius, Galatia, Cappadocia, 
Asia and Bithynia, which would be comprised of modern-day Turkey, just for a reference point. The first thing we look at and we see is Peter's addressing um, this crowd of believers that he has written this letter to, to encourage them. And uh, he addresses himself and, and says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Now, Peter, by this time, was an older man. And when he wrote First and Second Peter relatively close together, uh, he was only a few years away from his own crucifixion and death, where he died um, by being crucified upside down because he said that he wasn't worthy to be crucified the way Jesus was. Within a few years, he, would, he himself would be crucified. His name as an apostle had been, I mean, he'd been apostle for a, for a while, and uh, his name was well known. He was considered a leader among, among the apostles and a very powerful and prominent and well-known preacher uh, around the, um, the, the vicinity and the region where he taught and preached. Peter is kind of an enigma, I suppose. I know that uh, for myself personally, I always identified with Peter. And there, I guess because I made so many mistakes myself, you know, I saw the things that Peter did. I saw the mistakes that he made. And, and I, I had an affinity with that. But over time, I, I mean, I still look to Peter like that. But I see what God did in his life. But there, there are some contrasts in Peter's life that um, maybe we could look at a little bit closer. Peter's name is mentioned in the Gospels more than anyone except for the name of Jesus. No one speaks in the Gospels as often as Peter, as Peter did. And Jesus spoke more to Peter than any other individual. Peter walked on water with Jesus. I mean, even in, even in the midst of his failure, he had faith. It wasn't perfect faith, but it, he had faith. And it was his lack of faith that caused him to sink when he was walking on the water. A couple of contrasts in Peter's life. Jesus rebuked Peter more than any other disciple. Peter was the only disciple who dared to rebuke Jesus. Peter confessed Jesus more boldly and accurately than any other disciple. Peter denied Jesus more forcefully and publicly than any other disciple. Jesus praised Peter more than any other disciples. And Jesus addressed Peter as Satan alone among the disciples. So there's quite a contrast in Peter's life. Scripture speaks a lot of, of Peter. In, in John uh, chapter 6, verses 68 and 69, it says, Peter was the one who said, Lord, to whom shall we go when he was asked um, um, that question by Jesus? said, have you not left when the other disciples had gone or the other uh, believers? He said, he said, Lord, to whom shall we go you have the words of eternal life. Also, we have come to believe and know 
that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. A similar phrase he used when he, um, when, when Jesus renamed Peter um, to Peter, which means a small stone. Uh, Pet Petros, or there's two of them. Uh, I don't recall the exact uh, Greek word that was used there, but Matthew chapter 17, Jesus saw Peter transfigured in glory after his transfiguration. Uh, in Matthew 26, Peter heard Jesus predict that he would deny him three times, and Peter replied, even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. And the rest of the disciples agreed. In Matthew in Matthew, again in Matthew 26, Peter denied Jesus three times, cursing and swearing that he did not even know the man, refusing to even name the name of Jesus. In John, Peter was the one who cut off the right ear of Malchus, the servant of the high priest when the soldiers came to arrest Jesus. And either he meant to cut his ear off or he was a poor swordsman. My, my, my heart tells me that Peter was a lover and not a fighter, so it was just a matter of who knows what his intent was. The Bible doesn't clearly say, but um, you know we, we know about Peter. He, he did have a lot of love in spite of his failures and mistakes. In John 21, Peter, Peter received a public restoration of Jesus and, uh, uh, and, and the other disciples after the resurrection. So that gives us a kind of a brief glimpse of, of Peter's life and who he was. And I think when you take all that into consideration about the struggles that he faced, I think that he took that, those struggles, that brokenness, the memories, we talked about this in our Bible study, about memories of our, our past that we can't escape. But we can turn to Christ and know that we've been forgiven, that we've been redeemed that we have these promises that in the last days, when Jesus returns, like we sang in that, in that song, one of the last songs on that glorious day when Jesus returns, that's where we see our hope. That's the hope that we hang on to that cannot be defiled. Um, secondly, um, Jesus refers to the people that he wrote the letter to. Those who are called elects, uh, Elect exiles of the dispersion. And elect, uh, you know, I'm, I'm not going to get too deep into the weeds about predestination and election and those types of doctrines. That's not the time or the place. But, but I think what's used here when you look at the scripture on a whole, it's a Greek word called electos. And it means picked out, chosen, chosen by God to obtain salvation through Christ. Christians are called chosen elect of God. So regardless of what your personal belief and understanding, I know what mine is. We're going by what the word of God says, and that's what that word means. That they were chosen by God, even in the midst of this dispersion. And what had happened? Why were they, why were they exiles? Well, in the New Testament, uh, that that word exile is used uh, not in a reference like the Jewish exiles. It's just principally the same, but there's some subtle nuances in the way the word is is uh, 
um, translated in the New Testament. And really for these people, it means that heaven is their native country. They're not looking back as exiles from Rome. They're looking because they're believers in Christ. Ultimately, they know that their final home, their only home, is heaven. And so that's their identity. They are exiles no matter what country they would move to, no matter what, how they would relocate, no matter what ruler they were under, they would still be exiles. Just as we are, our home is heaven. That's the home we ultimately look to, right? So, so that, these are the people that he's talking about. It's also one who sojourns on earth. <laughs> A sojourner on earth. That sounds kind of lonely. But, but uh, these people were, had something in common. They'd all been facing fierce persecution from Rome. And there's a reason for why they were spread. Uh, only one among many. Obviously, the church was growing. The church was um, having an impact in a lot of different areas of the life as they knew it, you know, in the Gentile world. And so these, these people, because of the, number one, because of their association with the Jews who were causing problems in Rome. I mean, it was always kind of like a thorn in their side. They tolerated the Jewish people in Rome, but, you know, they, they had their limits. We, we've read about that in the Word of God. So in, in 64 AD, um, a fire broke out in the city of Rome, in the merchant area of the city of Rome. Soon the fire continued to burn for six days and seven nights, leaving 70% of the city in a smoldering ruins. Rumors soon arose that accused the Emperor Nero of ordering the torching of the city. The rumors persisted and the Emperor looked for a scapegoat. The Christians fed to the lions during the giant uh, spectacles held in the city's remaining amphitheater. Many Christians, Jewish and Gentiles, fled the city to escape the rising persecution. The Apostle Peter, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, wrote this epistle to strengthen and encourage them, to teach them how to live victoriously in the midst of a hostile environment. Without losing hope, without becoming bitter, while trusting in their Lord, and while looking for his second coming, all for the sake of the gospel and for the glory of God. The second part of that first statement, uh, uh, verse 2, says, According to the foreknowledge of God and the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood, May grace and peace be multiplied to you. That's in verse 2. Peter, um, Peter made a statement in Acts chapter 2, verse 23, after the day of Pentecost, preaching to the Jewish crowds there. Uh, he preached a powerful sermon, preaching to the Jews. It was scathing, and, and it was powerful because the Holy Spirit was in them now, was in them, and he was with them, and he was, he was working to bring growth to the church, to bring a foundation to the body of Christ that we still look back to 
hopefully as, as our firm foundation within the church, Christ is at the center of that firm foundation. He, he stated in Acts chapter 2 during this uh, powerful testimony and, and preaching, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. So right out of the gate, Peter in his first sermon introduces the idea that Christ, that God knows what's ahead of us. He, he has known from the beginning. He is omniscient. He's omnipresent. He knows everything and is everywhere. God, who you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. In Romans 8.29, Paul states, For those who he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might, that, that he might be the firstborn of many brothers. So Peter's reinforcing this, that whatever the experience is for these people, that God knows everything. And, and no matter what they experience or what they do, the fear that comes about them, the troubles and persecutions that they face, Christ has known about it from the beginning. And he is in charge. He's, he is uh, sovereign in every possible way. So he's trying to bring them comfort with that. And in the sanctification of the Spirit, oh, I'm sorry, I got ahead of myself. In Romans 11, 2, God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. He says, do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah, how he appealed to God against Israel? It's important to understand that the foreknowledge of God describes the nature of their election. God's choosing is not random or uninformed. In 1 Thessalonians 4, 3, uh, Paul says, For this is the will of God, that your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. Um, and so that, that plays into the, uh, the second half of, of, uh, of this, the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ. And uh, Paul, is, Paul is pointing that out uh, in, that, in that passage there, that... This is, the, this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. So that process of sanctification purifies us. It keeps us, keeps us uh, in, on the right path. It doesn't put us in the exact perfect place at any given time, but it does make sure if we are submitting to that process that we are on the path that we should be on, and God is working in us and through us. By his, by his Spirit and through His Word to strengthen us in our weaknesses and our sins. Um, some people would, uh, would, would like to think that election has only to do with going either to heaven or hell. The result of a truly sanctified life goes beyond that. It impacts our lives here on earth. An essential result of election is sanctification and obedience, as I stated, that sanctification produces obedience in our lives. It trains us to become obedient to Christ. A claim, to, a claim for many in this world to be among the elect comes into question if there is no evidence of sanctification and obedience. So it is an evidence that we must bear forth for the world uh, in order to uh, bear witness to the testimony that we make about Christ in our lives. 
Another part of that is uh, the reference that he uses uh, um, with the sprinkling of his blood. And what, what is used here, uh, there, were, there were three places in Scripture where blood was sprinkled on people. At the establishment of Sinai, or the Old Covenant, in Exodus 24, verses 5 through 8. At the ordination of Aaron and his sons, Exodus 29, verse 21. At the purification ceremony for a cleansed leper, in Leviticus 14, verses 6 through 7. And the sprinkling of the blood, if you if you look at what, what he's trying to do here, is he's, he's bringing them into a fold. He's reminding them that they are part of a covenant, the Old Testament covenant. They, their, their, their family is much larger than their surroundings dictate to them right now. He wants to bring them into the fold to increase their, their belief that God has his hand in their life because he's in a covenant relationship with them in spite of their surroundings and in spite of, of their uh, circumstances. The sprinkling of blood of Jesus on us accomplishes the same things. First, a covenant is formed. Then we are ordained as priests to him. And finally, we are cleansed from our corruption and sin. Each of these is ours through the work of Jesus on the cross. Hebrews 10.22, Paul, or the writer of Hebrews, uh, states, Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Excuse me for a minute. Again, in Hebrews, further down in, in uh, chapter 12, uh, the author of Hebrews says, And to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled uh, blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. The New Testament, in a sense, I'm not going to get too deep in the, into the woods on this one, but the New Testament is a better testament in, ultimately for us based on what we know of Christ based on what we believe about the redemption process. Um, we'll get into that a little bit later in this chapter, but, um, and uh, let's see. David Guzik uh, also noted regarding uh, this particular uh, verse, uh, David Guzik um, in, in his commentary on, on First Peter, he says, God the Father, God the Spirit, Jesus Christ, Peter's effortless way of combining the work of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in our salvation displays the New Testament approach to the Trinity. It is not, a de is not as detailed as a specific doctrine, but is woven into the fabric of the New Testament. So I thought it was very interesting, and I missed it the first time I read that, until I read what he, his comment was on that. He did. It, it enveloped the Trinity in, in a subtle way, but, but he could see it. And, and he wanted to infuse that into um, his encouragement to these exiles. Then Peter launches into what, what is considered a, 
sort of a doxology, and we know what a doxology is, I think. It is a, is a song that we sing here. Uh, it's brief, but it's poignant. It is, a, it is designed to glorify God, to focus solely on him. And we sing that sometimes at the end of, of, um, of our Bible studies at different times. So Peter does kind of launch into a, a doxology of sorts because he says in verse 3, he said, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and that does not fade away, reserved for heaven and you who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation ready to be revealed in the last days. So Peter continues to, to focus on, on God, to encourage these people not to lose sight of God and to put him in his proper place. And the result of all the sanctification and all the encouragement that he's given to them so far about our relationship with Christ and the growth that we experience is... Um, is going to result in praise to God if we're thinking about it properly and correctly. We will break out in spontaneous praise. Um, Spurgeon had something to say about this. In it, it said, In all his goodness to us begins with mercy. No other attribute could have helped us had mercy been refused. As we are by nature, Justice condemns us. Holiness frowns upon us. Power crushes us. The truth confirms the threatening of the law, and the wrath fulfills it. It is from the mercy of God, of our God, that all of our hopes begin. So he directs them. Blessed be the God of Father, according to his great mercy. He directs them to the mercies of God. And it... it um, and then the next portion of that, it says, uh, He has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Christ from the dead. And begotten us, some Bibles, some of your Bibles may say born again. It's the same thing. It's new birth. It's, it's a process of new birth. So, And uh, to a living hope through the resurrection of Christ from the dead. And he wants them to experience and to let the idea that the hope that God offers to them in their circumstances cannot be defiled. In this world, we can lose hope very easily. The world, a lot of times, wants to steal the hope that we have. If we're reflecting it, it's not always received all that well, but, but the Holy Spirit in his powerful presence in this world um, will do the work. We just need to make the proclamation. We need to be living out the gospel. And we need to hang on to the hope that he gives us. Again, another quote from Spurgeon. Oh, I'm sorry, let me back up a bit. He's, he has begotten us again to a living hope. And that hope, as we as Christians, our hope is founded in the resurrection of Christ, right? We just had Easter last Sunday where we celebrated Christ's resurrection. And for us as believers, the resurrection of Christ is the promise that 
that keeps and sustains us to the end. It is everything, if, if Christ didn't resurrect, if Christ wasn't brought forth and, and, and raised again from the dead, our hope in Christ is in vain. But it isn't. He has risen from the, from the dead. He was resurrected to establish that hope inside of us for eternity until the day we are with him face to face. Spurgeon had another comment. I like Spurgeon. Um, it is also called living hope because it is imperishable. Other hopes fade like withering flowers. The hopes of the rich, the boasts of the proud, all these will die out as a candle when it flickers in the socket. The hope of the greatest monarch has been crushed before our eyes. He set up the standard of victory too soon and has been uh, trailed in the mire. There is no unwaning hope beneath the changeful moon. The only imperishable hope is that which climbs above the stars and fixes itself upon the throne of God and the person of Jesus Christ. So hang on to your hope. No matter what, no matter what you face in life, we've got to hold on to our hope and keep our eyes on the prize. Amen? Uh, if you look at First Peter, Peter, further, further in this chapter, in verse 23, uh, it says, Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. So he continues this reinforcing the idea that that what they have cannot be taken away, that it is there until the end. Second uh, Corinthians uh, chapter one, verses three and four. Paul, Paul addresses the Corinthian church. He said, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort who com comforts us in all our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort wherewith we ourselves are comforted by. These, these people needed comfort in their affliction, and the end result, even for us sometimes, like, like this uh, scripture says, we are able to comfort those. If we've been through something rough, if we've been through a trial and a loss and a painful circumstance that, that brought us to the crux of our faith, that increased our love for Christ and deepened our faith, then we are able to comfort those who may come to us with the same fear and the same struggle. So it does give us an ability to comfort others. In Ephesians 1, verse 3, uh, Paul says in the, in the letter to the Ephesians, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Titus 3, chapter 5 says, He saved us not because of our works done, by, done in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit. Let's look at verse 4. How am I doing on time? 
doing okay so far. The alarm hasn't gone off, so. Uh, verse 4, to an, to an inheritance that is imperishable and defiled and unfading, kept for you in heaven. To a living hope we are born again, to a living hope because we, we have eternal life in a Savior who has conquered death himself. The hope lives because it is set upon an inheritance, inheritance incorruptible that can never fade away because it is revealed, uh, reserved in heaven. This is a significant contrast to any inheritance on this earth. And what, what, what he's doing by, number one, bringing them into, like we noticed earlier in this chapter, reminded them of this covenant relationship. He referred to God the Father in, in engaging them in this family. So now that they have this idea that they belong to the family of God, um, it, it, he brings up the idea of an inheritance because in dumb, you know, some families, not every family, but in some families, there is an inheritance that is brought as a result of a tragic incident. We inherit certain things from, from parents and different things like that. Um, and I don't know if you've ever gotten one of those crazy emails that says that uh, you've got some long-lost uncle that uh, has an account, he died and left you an inheritance of $500 million, and all you have to do is call this number. Well, we know that the chances of that happening are very slim, right? And what he's trying to do with these people, these exiles, is he's trying to encourage them to look forward to the promises that Christ has given them as an inheritance because they are part of his family. And he also stresses that it's imperishable and undefiled and unfading and kept in heaven, that God is keeping, he's keeping it safe. He's keeping them for that glorious time at the end of their lives or at the end of the age when he returns, whatever happens first, they, when they see him face to face, then this is the reward. This is when they will receive that inheritance. And I don't know about you, but to me, that's a great encouragement. When I'm feeling down and broken and discouraged, I think, man, this is only temporary. Things are gonna get better. Things are gonna move forward. God is in control. He's sovereign in our lives. He loves us. He gives us these promises because of this great loving relationship that he has, he has forged and created in us. So we need to be able to hang on to that for encouragement and hope when we're struggling ourselves. In 1 Peter chapter 5, a little further down in this book, Peter also refers to it and says, and when the chief shepherd appears, which is, um, the, uh, the appearing of Christ that's for us to look forward to when he appears. He says, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. So he's continuing this theme of encouraging them to look forward. And it's consistent. There's many aspects of what Peter is trying to teach these, these believers that are consistent throughout this entire message. Right now, we're going through the who, what, where, why, and when, right? Through verses 1 through 12, we're kind of 
taken a broader look at that. But in verses 13 through the remainder of this particular chapter, we're going to go through the how. And so Peter begins to lay out at that point, I won't get too much into it, but, but we're just told why right now. This is why we're to be encouraged. This is why we need hope. This is why we look at our relationship with a loving, gracious Savior in this way. And this is, the, he points to God and brings God to the forefront and paints this wonderful picture of a blessed God who loves us so dearly and why it's so important. Because we can't forget that we are in a covenant relationship. The sprinkling of the blood was, a, was a, uh, an example of being in that covenant relationship. And that covenant relationship is a two-way street. It's a relationship. God comes to us with a promise. And during the consummation of that relationship, we come to him with a promise. We come to him with a promise of obedience. We come to him with a promise of perseverance, of, of moving forward, of trusting in him in every aspect of our life, even in the good and the bad, right? I mean, we, we, can, we find it easy to, to find joy when things are going great. It's easy to find happiness, right? It's easy to find joy and peace in times when everything's cool. But when things go sour, that's when the rubber meets the road. That's when we're brought into that place of growth with Christ. And, and our relationship with him is strengthened and, and, and enriched by that process. We come out on the other side through those trials and struggles stronger if we're looking to Christ if we're looking in the right direction for the solution or for the encouragement through our problems, if we're looking to this world, we're going to be disappointed because this world will fail us. This world is temporary. This world right now is dark. And, and we as believers in Christ have such a privilege to have this light in this dark world and I just pray that we will just continue to grow in that light and shine that light out for the world to see. Because these folks here, in, in spite of their circumstances, the word of God, as we look through this a little further, God is encouraging them to witness to these people that are persecuting them. That's a challenge. You know, be good to your neighbor. Be good to those who persecute you. Pray for your enemies. Christ gives hard instruction in many cases, things that are difficult for us to, to swallow, but they're direction for us as Christians nonetheless. That door open? Oh, I know what it was. Okay, good. I'm about ready. Okay. Where were we? I kind of got, got off on a random thing there. I apologize. I'll try to stay on track, but sometimes I can't help it. <laughs> um, where did we leave off here? Romans 18, 8, 17. Well, we'll start there again. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may be glorified with him. Christ suffered. And we are expected to 
endure that as well. Maybe not in the same exact way, but in, in every way, the, the, the word of God compels us. If we choose Christ, if we make a decision to follow Christ, it isn't all going to be bells and whistles and a perfect life and make no mistakes. In fact, the Bible tells us the opposite. If we confess Christ as a, as a believer and we begin to live and exhibit those characteristics in our lives, the Bible says the world will hate us because the world hated Christ first. So we, 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 can, we have to know what to expect. We have to count the cost of that decision that we make to follow Christ in our lives. It can be great and beneficial and it is everything that the world doesn't offer us and it gives us everything we've been talking about. But it can be a struggle too. There can be some difficult times that come along with that. But we look forward to being glorified with him in the end. Now let's move down to verse 5. Who by God's power are being guarded or kept through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed at the end time. Did we do that one? Okay, 1 Peter 5.10, after that you have suffered a while. Oh, Romans 8.18, for I consider the sufferings of the present time are not worthy comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. And in 2 Corinthians 4.17, um, Paul writes, for this light momentary affliction is preparing us uh, for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. So it is preparation for us for that time. Hebrew, the writer of Hebrews in, tw in uh, chapter 12, verse 11, says, For the moment all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. So this process is essential for us. We are trained by it. And over time, we, we suffer, and it says, um, it says, for the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. Isn't that true, right? But later it yields, so we look forward, later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Uh, verse 6, in this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. Peter, Peter continues this thought and says, Beloved, in 1 Peter chapter 4, further on in this book, he says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. So we can't really look at the trials that come our way as something odd. We expect it, right? We expect God to work in us in that way. And James, in uh, chapter 1, says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, difficult thing to do, to look for joy and rejoice in those kind of times. It's, it's, it's not easy. And why? Why is this? In verse 7 we look at it, it says, So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result 
in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So that's the why. So that the tested genuineness of your faith, sometimes God brings us through that in times when we don't understand why it's happening to us. We, you know, I do all the right things. I go to church. I read my Bible. I pray. I sing. I, I do service at the church. Why am I going through this? And really, part of the reason why God tests us is to test our faith, like it says, testing the genuineness of our faith. Hopefully, we come out on the other side of that test stronger in our relationship with Christ. Hopefully, that's the process. Otherwise, that testing and that pain is a waste. And we can't let something so precious and vital to us as Christians, we can't lose sight of it and we can't let it go to waste. Use those times. There's a there's a purpose for the brokenness that we experience in our lives. We talked about that a little bit um, in our Bible study today, about the pain that we carry with us from our past, the broken feelings and thoughts that we share or that we, we are burdened with because we cannot forget. God, we know, will forgive, but we can't forget. So that brokenness serves a purpose in our lives, and it can be a healthy and helpful thing for us to remind us of the goodness of God and the grace of God and the mercy of God in spite of how dark we were. I, I know a little bit about that. I'm not going to share that. I know there are others who have those same experiences. And it says that, so that the genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revolution, revelation of Jesus Christ. So it's supposed to glorify God and produce praise in our lives. Look to him and give him thanks for everything uh, that we've done. Spurgeon had another quote. Uh, Indeed, it is the honor of faith to be tried. Shall any man say, I have faith, but I have never had to believe it under difficulties? Who knows whether thou hast any faith? Shall a man say, I have great faith in God, but I have never had to use it in anything more than the ordinary affairs of life, where I could probably have done without it as well as with it? Is this the honor and praise of thy faith? Dost thou think that such a faith as this will bring any great glory to God or to bring thee any great reward. And then he finishes, and I love this. I'm going to have to remember this comeback. He says, if so, thou art mightily mistaken. <laughs> I'm going to say that line. I want to use that one sometime. So he points out there that, that we, you know, if, if we think we can fake it and we're going to make it, you know, there, there, there's a question mark there, right? We, we don't know what God, we believe God is who he says he is. We believe that we, are pers pers we will persevere, that he has his hand in our lives and will see us through to the end. We will, we will persevere. He will preserve us to the end. But if we're faking it and we're not real about our faith and there's not evidence and growth, and, and through that process of testing, we might be fooling ourselves. So it's, it's good to take a good close look in the mirror every once in a while.
James 1.3 says, For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Job writes in, or in Job 23.10, we all know Job knows a little something about suffering, right? If you're familiar with that story, you know this guy is like, he's like the poster child for suffering in the Bible as far as I'm concerned. But he saw it too. And in the end, he saw suffering as not a, a retribution against him personally. But he states, we know, but he knows the way I take. When he has tried me, I shall come out as gold. So he recognized this process of refining, of the heat of, and pressure that comes from this refining process burns off the impurities in our life and helps us become more pure in our faith, more and more pure. We won't be pure in our faith until we come to see him face to face, but it helps us move and grow. Psalm 66.10 says, For you, O God, have tested us. You have tried us as silver is tried. Again, in Proverbs 17, the crucible is for silver and the furnace is for gold. The Lord tests the hearts. Okay, let's move on. Down to verse 8. I'm a little bit behind here, so we'll try to skip through these a little bit. Uh, verse 8, though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not uh, now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. First John 4.20 says, If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God who he has not seen. And John uh, chapter 20, verse 29 says, Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and have not and yet have believed. These people never didn't have the privilege of seeing Christ like Peter did. And the Old Testament prophets, they didn't, none of them were able to see Christ and to experience him personally. So he's telling them that it, it doesn't matter that in a sense, because they hadn't seen Christ, that their faith was like a little, not stronger, but more, had more depth, I guess, because their, their, their faith is based on faith, not on what they see, but, but on the word of God and the, the trust in God's promises. Uh, let's see, uh, verse nine, obtaining an outcome of your faith which is the outcome of our faith, right? The salvation of your souls. That's where we're headed. That's what. That's the end goal. That's the touchdown line is to reach that point of salvation and reuniting ourselves with our Creator. Um, verse 10, concerning the salvation... The prophets who prophesied about their grace was to be yours, searched for and inquired carefully. The Old Testament prophets uh, were at a, a slight disadvantage. The Holy Spirit was working through them to reveal what they wrote, to reveal what they spoke. He was guiding them. They were being led. 
but there was an incompleteness to what they were being told. Uh, they, they moved forward in faith to be able to uh, proclaim what, what the Holy Spirit was telling them to proclaim in obedience to Christ, but they didn't have the full picture. We, on the other hand, looking back to the prophets, we can see all this stuff. And like on Peter's first first uh, sermon right out of the gate, he quotes Joel. He begins to quote to the Jews the old prophets, the old, the old Testament prophets, who spoke of Christ, spoke, or not of Christ, but of the Messiah, but they didn't know who it was and they didn't know when he would come. The New Testament tells us who he is. Doesn't tell us the day he's coming, but it gives us the signs to look for for that. And it tells us to be prepared for that time. Um, and verse 12, the final verse, we'll, we'll close with this verse. It says, It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, talking about the prophets, but you. They were, they were proclaiming for a future generation. What they did, the dedication and the effort that they made uh, by the direction of the Holy Spirit wasn't for them, it was for us. In the things that you now, that now have been announced to you through those who preach the good news, meaning the apostles, the Paul and the other apostles and Barnabas and all these guys who were traveling around this region preaching the gospel, have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which even angels long to look. In Daniel uh, chapter 12, and two places actually, uh, verse 4 and verse 9, verse 4 says, But you, Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book until the time of the end, until the time of the end. Many shall run to and fro and acknowledge and knowledge shall increase. What that knowledge is, is the understanding of what they were saying. That, that would increase in, in our time, in the, New, in the New Testament era. We have more knowledge now. Our knowledge of Christ, our knowledge of the plan from the beginning has increased. Uh, Matthew uh, 13, verse 17. For truly I say to you, many prophets and righteous people long to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. Hebrews 11.39 says, the writer says, and all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us, uh, that apart from this, they should be made perfect. We're there. Bear with me. <laughs> I apologize. Um, and then the last part of that was a very intriguing statement. Uh, the last part of that, it said, uh, where angels long to look. And, you know, the, the, the kingdom of God has many mysteries that we really cannot fully comprehend or fully understand or fully explain. And I, I think that the idea of the angels' presence, the angels' understanding, 
of what we're about. The Bible says that they observe us, that they are looking over us and watching. They don't know. They didn't know when Jesus would return. Uh, the Bible clearly says that, that they did not know the day of Christ's return. So they, they have limited understanding of us, and they look with amazement towards us. I think it's a very intriguing statement, and it challenges, excuse me, it challenges our, our, our thinking to look to, into those mysteries a little bit and at least try to understand. It's like the Trinity. Who can adequately explain the Trinity? You know, there, there are things. And in that heavenly realm, it talks about different aspects of, of what that is and how that's structured up there. We read a lot about it in the book of Genesis in the early, early chapters. But so... Uh, there's a story in Daniel that says, Then I, Daniel, looked, and behold, two others stood, one on this bank of the stream and the other on the bank of the stream. And someone said to the man clothed in linen, these men are not named or identified, but they are, they are described, who was, above the waters, who was above the waters of the stream, how long shall it be till the end of these wonders? And I heard the man clothed in linen who was above the waters of the stream, he raised his right hand and, and his left hand towards heaven and swore by him who lives forever that it would be for a time and times and a half a time and that when the shattering of the power of the holy people comes to an end, all these things would be finished. So they are eagerly uh, anticipating that moment as well just like we are. And I'd like to close with just one uh, verse in, in the book of Luke, chapter 15, verse 10, regarding what these angels see and what they look for. And it says, Just so, I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. So that's my hope today, that if you are here today, and you have not repented of your sins and accepted Christ and are walking with him and believing and trusting in Christ. Don't let another go day, another day go by before you take that step. Because what we see here is that even the angels in heaven rejoice over one sinner who repents and believes in Christ. Amen? All right, let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you, Father, and, and I pray, Lord, that I've been able to communicate your word in a way that brings praise and glory, Lord, that strengthens our faith, and Father, in, in, a, in a very real and substantive way, Lord, we, we look to you, we look to your word, Father, we look to the comfort that you give us each and every day, how you strengthen us when we are struggling, Lord. Help us to keep you ever-present in our minds. Help us, Lord, to open up our hearts to the presence of the Spirit that works within us, Lord. Help us to let him have his way in our lives, to lead us, to guide us, to open up your word, and to bring us closer to you, Lord, to instill hope and to bring us closer in our relationship and closer in our relationship to those that we love and care about so much. 
We pray this in the mighty name of Jesus. And everyone said, Amen. Amen. Thank you for your patience.